Well, I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles this morning uh, over to Exodus chapter 20. While you're flipping over there, especially uh, for the the benefit of those of you guys who may be here with us visiting this morning, I I want to say a minute, uh, just just a minute, speak for just a minute about, about what Christians celebrate at Easter. Really, we celebrate at Easter the same thing that we celebrate every single Sunday. There's a reason that Christians worship on Sunday. It commemorates the day that we believe Jesus rose from the dead. At the core of our lives, at the center of our hope, is a belief that a man as real as me or you, a human with a body just like ours, lived on this earth, looked up at the same sun that we look up to, died a real death. His body was as vulnerable to outside attack as yours is or as mine is and he bore an attack that took him all the way to the end that his dead body was laid into a tomb that he laid dead for three days but that on the third day that body that had been dead came back to life and that body that came back to life on that day lived still He's living now in a body that's as real as yours is. And he lives not just for his own benefit, but as a foreshadowing. The way the New Testament talks about Jesus rising again from the dead is as a kind of first fruits. It's an agricultural term. That because Jesus' body lives again, so will every other body of those who trust in him. That when we see him living, We know that we one day can live too because of him. What Jesus offers is forgiveness for the sins that we have committed against God and one another and hope that the death we deserve to die for our sins has been died already by him so that now instead of getting what we deserve, we get what he deserves, which is life that never, ever ends. That's the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope of Easter. It's what we call the gospel. It's true. And it's for you this morning, if you'll trust in it. One of the things that we say about the gospel, though, we, so we've, we've been celebrating what I just summarized for you already this morning. All the songs we've sung, all the, the readings and the prayers, they've all been about what I just said, celebrating the truth of this message. But the message isn't just a, a message about something that happened in the past. It isn't even just a message about something that's offered to you now. It's a message that, if you come to believe it, changes you. It changes what you see and how you see. It changes your orientation to the world. It's what might be called a self-involving belief. It's not something you can just affirm and move on. It's a belief that once you believe it, changes how you interact with the world. And so what we like to do during our sermons, especially on Easter, but really every Sunday, is try to understand from God's word what it looks like for us to live as if this message really is true. How does the resurrection change what we, what we see around us and how we interact with it? What difference does it make to believe that Jesus is alive even though he was once dead? Because this hope, the hope of a new creation, of a, of a new world free of death and decay and tears, because that hope is so consistent in the Bible, because it's spread from beginning to end all throughout its message, one way we like to celebrate Easter here is to just take whatever series we're in already in our sermons and look for the resurrection in it. It's a way of reinforcing a point that we try to make over and over and over and over again. God's word is all about Jesus, 
Even the parts written hundreds of years before him, they all point ahead to him and help us understand why we need him. And if Jesus, if his work ultimately builds to his resurrection and the promise of life that he offers us through his resurrection, that means the whole Bible is really about resurrection. So what we like to do in our normal Sunday mornings, what we do is we take a section of the scriptures and we just work through it, verse by verse, section by section, taking whatever comes next as a way of submitting ourselves to it. Instead of just cherry-picking the parts we like best, we take, we take whole chunks and just work through them systematically. So we're going to do that today. We're in a series right now on the Ten Commandments. We've been taking one commandment each week. And we're going to take the next commandment in line and try to see the beauty and power of Christ's resurrection through it. Last week, the command we looked at was the command to honor your father and mother. Next week, we'll be looking at the command not to commit adultery. This week, the command is, do not murder. So, happy Easter, everybody. (laughs) uh, uh, More seriously, uh, I think it may surprise you, it surprised me, how relevant this command, and really what lies behind this command, how relevant it is, to what Christians celebrate on Easter. See, in this command, we have one of the clearest, most unavoidable and powerful statements that the Bible makes about the preciousness of human life in all its forms. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we have an unmatched power for following him in affirming the preciousness of human life. What I want you to walk away with this morning is is a clear vision for the wonderful way we have, a wonderful opportunity we have for celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, not just today, but every day, in affirming the preciousness of life. Being life-affirming people is a powerful way to celebrate the one who came, lived, died, and rose for us. Now that's the burden of this message. That's what I want you to see by the time we're done. I want to begin by just reading this short and simple command and then ask three questions of it. How should we understand this command? What's going on here? How should we apply it? In other words, what would it look like? What does it mean for us in our own day-to-day lives? And then how can we obey it? Where do we get the strength to pursue what this command puts in front of us? I want to begin by reading God's word. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of his word. As I read from Exodus chapter 20, Verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not murder. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. How should we understand this command, the sixth commandment? I think to understand this simple, straightforward command and the deeper meaning that it holds... We need to uh, understand first what it means and where it's coming from or why it matters. So, so what, it's, what on the surface of it, it's saying, but then also what it's rooted in. Thankfully, the Bible makes it clear on both counts. On what it means, we have to be careful about one thing, namely the limitations of our English words for translating this verse. So, so the, the, the text that I just read, and the translation I'm using, says you shall not murder. The most famous English translation... King James Version says, Thou shalt not kill. These are two good faith efforts to put that Hebrew word into English, and neither of them work very well. Because it's way more specific than just don't kill. 
There's another word for kill. The Bible, the author here is, is choosing not to use it. And, and, and later on, even in the law, even in this own book, we see that God doesn't prohibit all killing. It's not a prohibition on taking human life in general. But the word for murder is too specific. So the word for kill is too general. The word for murder is too specific, especially for the way we use it. Because we tend to think about murder as, as a kind of premeditated act where, where you decide for, for reasons that can't be justified, I'm going to kill that person, and then you do it. Uh, that is implied in this command, for sure. That would be something this command would tell you not to do. But it's bigger than that. It isn't just premeditated killing like that. It, it's actually a word that also covers uh, what you might call negligent homicide. So a little bit later in Exodus, there's going to be an example given that's got a, a lot of cultural relevance today, I think. Uh, if your ox is wandering the streets and gores someone, you're not guilty. If your ox has wandered the street and gored someone before and you let your ox wander the street again and he gores somebody a second time, you are guilty of breaking this command. So, so what you can see there is that it's not just about like, what you decide ahead of time to do. It's also what you allow happen to happen. You bear some responsibility there. So, so this word is, is not just a command not to kill in general. It's more specific than that. But it's, not, it's also not so specific as, as murder. What is it? What's the command condemning? Here's, here's the way one Old Testament scholar put it. I, I like this way. Uh, an author of a commentary, uh, Desmond Alexander's his name, uh, on Exodus, says that what this command is, con- is condemning, based on the word itself and how it's used in other places in the, in the law, is any taking of human life beyond what God has authorized. Any unauthorized killing. Now, the reason that matters is that this, this command is a statement about the sanctity or preciousness of human life But at the same time, it's a challenge, a direct challenge to anyone who would claim the right to decide which lives are worth protecting and which ones aren't. It's a challenge to anyone who would put themselves into God's shoes. Now, this gets us us at at the why behind the command, where it's coming from. So the command is, don't take life on your own authority. You don't get to decide who lives and who dies. That's the command. And it's rooted in the biblical conviction that human lives are precious to God, created by God, defined by God, and ultimately belonging to God. So when you take life, you put yourself in God's position. You take for yourself God's own authority. Here's another, uh, another quote from that same writer. No human, he says, has the authority to destroy the life of another. Anyone who takes to himself or herself the right to take the life of another usurps the place of God. Or as another one puts it, the life is not ours to take, but belongs to God alone. Human life is always God's. There's only one Lord of life, one master over it. Friends, this comes directly from the Bible's teaching about where human lives come from. In the book of Genesis, just before this book that we're in now in Exodus, the, the, the creation of humanity is described for us. And God, God creates everything that is by his sheer decision to do so, but creates humans uniquely. Gives them what the Bible calls his own image inside of them. He makes humans in his image and therefore warns any human who would attack 
his image in another human. The first clear prohibition of murder is not here in Exodus, but back in Genesis. In Genesis 9, after, after God has passed judgment on the world for its wickedness, including the, the cheapness of human life and the quickness to kill, God makes a new covenant with a man named Noah. And in this covenant, he specifically says, anyone who kills will face judgment because humans bear the image of God. So when we kill, here's, here's the point. When we kill, when we take life into our own hands, we treat the lives of other people as cheap. Implicitly, what we're saying is, your life is less valuable than my life. And this command is telling us we don't have the authority to decide which lives matter. Human lives, my life, your life, the life of every human everywhere, human lives matter because God says that they matter. Because they matter to him. Because they bear his image, and that means any attack on them is an attack on him. Now, I assume, friends, that you've come here this morning as a a, a person who who values human life. I'm guessing, assuming that you believe human rights are sacred. That they ought to be protected. That probably you believe, I hope you believe, that human rights ought to be expanded anywhere that they're held back by the powerful at the expense of the weak. If that's the way you feel about human rights, if that's what you believe about human life and its preciousness, then I believe you're absolutely right and that you're more biblical in your thinking than you may realize. I wonder, why do you believe that human life ought to be protected like this? Why do you believe human life is is special? I wonder, what authority... Here's here's another question to put a, a, a tighter point on it. What authority would you appeal to if someone disagreed with you about the value of human life? When we get questions like this wrong, friends, every one of us is vulnerable. Because if it isn't God, the God who made us and rules over everything now, If it isn't God who decides the value of a human life and what lives count as human, then then who decides? I'll tell you who decides. Anyone who's powerful enough to impose their definition, that's who decides. Anyone more powerful than I am to stop them, that's who decides. And friends, that is not a theoretical threat. That is the tragic and consistent story of human history around the world. I, this week, was started uh, reading a book that was, I saw recommended recently uh, by a, a scholar named David Smith, a book called Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others. Uh, it, is, it is difficult reading, as you can guess from that title. Uh, but it's clear, <laughs> and it's compelling. The book is mainly an account of genocide, how it happens, especially how it gets justified. He uses examples from different times and different places showing how consistent it is across times and places. The pattern by which a class of human life is defined as less worthy of life than another class shows how sort of bits and pieces, the building blocks, if you will, 
of what's involved in one group claiming the power and the right to redefine the life of another group. He talks about how language is so important, how language is used, as he says, as a weapon in this, in this battle. He's got recent examples like the Rwandan genocide from the 1990s where the, the Hutus labeled the Tutsis as, as cockroaches. That was their term. Not humans, pesky insects. He talks about the more famous example, the, the, the way that the Nazis roped off Jews and the Roma people and the disabled and many others with their own special word for subhuman. They defined such peoples as rats. And Smith makes the point, quote, it's wrong to kill a person, but permissible to exterminate dangerous, disease-carrying rats. I mean, that's just in the public interest, right? Like, we want what's good for society. You can see what he's saying. What genocide always involves on a large scale is one group claiming the right to define on their terms the life of another group. And where genocide and all of its little handmaidens along the way has been challenged, it's been challenged here. You do not have the right to define the value of my life. Probably for me, the most enduring image from the civil rights movement is the image of the protesters in Memphis during the sanitation strike wearing these, these signs and carrying these signs that say simply, I am a man. That's it. That's the message. And no one else out there gets to tell me I'm not. And I think there's something in us, friends, that's stirred when we see that. And we say, yes, that's right. But again, I ask you, where do we appeal for the authority to disagree with someone who says, you're not a man? If the value of a human life is nothing more than whatever the most powerful person says that it is, none of us is safe. We need some criteria. We need some sort of authority for saying no to the, any sort of power grab that would claim one form of human life is less valuable than their preferred variety of human life. Where do you find that authority? I, I, that's not, a, that's not a, a hypothetical question, friends. Where do you find that authority for the beliefs about human life that I, I assume you brought in with you this morning? You won't find it in evolutionary biology. You won't find it in the scientific method, as useful as it may be in its own place. You won't find this value of human life in human history as if through some sort of inevitable progress we've been growing into an enlightened awareness of our own significance. That's not true. History won't bear that. Even today, you can look around the world to find plenty of tragic counterexamples. It isn't just basic human truth that's universally recognized. Where do you get it? What gives human life its value? I'll tell you. Here we see, friends. Here we see the beautiful life-affirming, hope-stirring clarity of the Bible's message to you this morning. That human life, all of it, gets its value. Not from what the powerful think about it. Not from what ethnicity it happens to fall into, socially constructed by whomever. Not to capacities that that human life has for demonstrating beauty, genius, brilliance, whatever. Not for its ability to contribute to society. 
not for any other reason but this one. Human life has value in every condition, at every stage, because God says it does. He made humans in his image. And nobody, no matter how powerful they are, has a right to disagree with him. Friends, that's the weight carried along with this command. It is a gift and a protection for all of us. And here's the point. You want to understand this command? Here it is. It's a command that we affirm the precious value of human life because God does. It's that simple. That's what it means, but how should we apply it? And here's where we're actually at risk, I think, because uh, maybe by this point you're feeling pretty good. You know, you're nodding along. Okay, got it. Don't murder. I can manage that one. Wrong. And one of the things we've seen every single week in, in talking about the Ten Commandments is that there's always more going on in these commands than we see on the surface. Uh, and, and I want to remind you, before we dig into this one and how to apply this one, I want to remind you a couple of principles we've talked about uh, that, that are important for us as we approach the Ten Commandments one by one. One of the things, one of these principles, when we first talked about the Ten Commandments, what they are, how they work, one of the principles that we've talked about is that the Ten Commandments in the larger picture of what God is saying in his word, are kind of like a constitution. They're different from case laws. There's lots of other laws applying the principles of the Ten Commandments to specific situations in Israel's life. Those come later. The Ten Commandments come first as a set of bedrock principles that, that then get used to, to, uh, to guide the specific laws that get put into place afterwards. So knowing that that's what these Ten Commandments are doing, that that's what they're like, one kind of rule for interpretation that that Christians have, have used for a long time, and before them, the writers in the scriptures were using this. One kind of rule for interpreting the commands and applying them is what one, one writer has called the two-sided rule. The two-sided rule. What it means is that for every command, whether it's framed negatively, like this one is, don't murder, or positively, like remember the Sabbath, every command comes with a negative side and a positive side. Every command says something you shouldn't do, but also implies something you should do. Uh, you, can see this, uh, you can see this in action, just for example, in the command not to steal. We haven't gotten to that one yet. We'll get into that in later. But Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, writing in his letter to the Ephesians, um, trying to help him understand what it means to follow God after Jesus has come for them, he goes back to the Ten Commandments for his material. And he says to them, look, now, because you belong to Jesus, don't steal. All right, there's your negative. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. But he doesn't stop there in Ephesians 4. He says, let the thief stop stealing. But then he says, let him rather labor, doing honest work with his own hands. This is a quote from Paul. Why? So that he might have something to share with anyone in need. You see what Paul's doing there? It's not enough just to not take something from somebody. The command also means you should give what you have to those who need it. There's a negative side and a positive side to these commands and to how they get applied in the Scriptures. So that applies here too. If the bedrock command is God has made human life precious, value it because he does, then that means no one gets to destroy that precious treasure. That's true, period, full stop. But it's not enough to just hold back from destroying it and call it a day. This command reaches further than that. It reaches into your own heart, into how you even view people. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. Anger is a violation of this command, he says. And more on a positive side, it drives you, this command drives you into how you serve people. 
how, what it looks like for you to love them. Here's a quote, just, just to show you how this two-sided rule for these commands has been working out, not just in the Bible, but in other Christian interpreters since then. I just want to read you a quote from Martin Luther 500 years ago. This is what he said about this command. Luther says, This commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor, or though he has opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. Luther continues, If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you've let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and you don't feed him, you've let him starve. It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. I hope you can see the point. I hope that's clear enough. When we come to a command like this one and we have to apply it, we have to ask, what does this one actually mean for my life? And of course it means don't kill. But it means more than that. To apply this command, we need to know that because lives are precious, we must look for opportunities to protect and to promote life. What this command means for us, when we apply it, here's what we're applying. We are looking for our opportunities to protect and to promote life. Now, so far, we've just been talking high level. I think we have to go to an example. And I want to do that right now for a few minutes. So there are a lot of hot-button issues we could go to to talk about the preciousness of life and what it means to advocate for it. We could talk about the capital punishment. We could talk about self-defense killings and whether they're justified. We could talk about pacifism and war. We could talk about euthanasia and suicide. What I want to focus on is an issue that I think especially helps illustrate the point I've just been trying to make. That when we come to apply a command like this one, there's both a negative, what not to do, and a positive. And then on a positive side, there's not just what you should prevent, but also what you should promote. You should seek to do good towards your neighbor, to protect them and to promote their flourishing built into this command. I want to choose an an issue that I think helpfully illustrates both sides of that. So I want to talk for a minute this morning about abortion. And before I talk about it, I want to talk about talking about it. uh, Because I know the stakes are high. The stakes are high because some of you in this room have had abortions. And me talking about the seriousness of it, the moral gravity of it, I know, could deepen the shame and the regret you already live with. And I desperately don't want to do that. So what I want to say to you this morning, if that's you, is that though abortion is grievous for reasons that we need to talk about, it is not unforgivable. It does not define who you are to God, and it doesn't define who you are to us in our church. If Christ can forgive me, friends, if he can forgive me, He can forgive anybody. And He can forgive you too. And what we are put here on this earth to offer to you right now this morning in His name, with His precious and life-giving authority backing what we say, is that you can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. And you can live with and enjoy our welcome in our community. 
If this is part of your story, if abortion is part of your story and you need care, please give us the chance to offer it to you. I know the stakes are high in talking about this issue because it's deeply personal. I know the stakes are also high when we talk about this issue because issues like this one are supercharged politically. And it's Easter Sunday. And uh, maybe you're here to check out what churches are like or to give the church another chance after a long absence. And you're thinking, yep, just like I figured, it's just a front for somebody else's political agenda. Just like I was taught to expect. Just like, I, just like I've experienced before. And if that's you this morning, and that's what you're thinking, that's what you're worried about. I, we probably don't, and we may not know one another, uh, so I may not have earned any credibility with you yet. So I'm just going to ask you to give me a grace that I haven't earned yet. The grace of uh, a benefit of the doubt. If you'll give me just a few minutes of your attention to speak to this issue in a way that I hope won't fulfill what you're worried about. To give me the, the, the grace to hear me. Suspend your judgment for a moment. Because, friends, I believe that the Bible speaks clearly to this issue, but not in a way that lines up with any political party platform that I've ever seen. So, what we've said is that the two-sided rule for interpreting the Ten Commandments, the two-sided rule for interpreting the command not to murder means we have to do what we can to protect life and to promote life wherever lives are vulnerable. We're called to protect and to promote. I want to show you how on this issue, seeing this duty would frame how we approach it. If we're called to protect life, then that means we need to be invested as God gives us opportunity in protecting the lives of unborn children from legal abortion. From the moment of conception, a human life is formed. Nobody out there disputes that. What I mean is no one denies that it's a life from its earliest stage. And no one denies that its DNA is human. It's not some other species. So a human life is formed at conception. Everybody agrees about that. The only question is whether this is the sort of human life that deserves protection. Or whether this... This variety of human life belongs to a different class from yours and mine. Now, I want you to remember what I said a little bit earlier. Whatever the intent of those who argue that these lives don't deserve protection, however well-meaning their motives may be, when they define these human lives as dispensable, they are relying on tactics that are not unfamiliar to us. There's the same decision to recategorize one life as different from mine. The same decision that Smith found in, as a part of a pattern in all genocides. There's the same shift in language. Not cockroach, not rat in this case. Fetus, tissue. But certainly not child, not human. There's the same decision to give one class of human the privilege and power to decide whether another class of human life is worthy to live or detrimental to the interests of those who have the power to decide. All the same moves are there. 
And what this command teaches us, if we'll hear it, is that the life of an unborn child is not less valuable than your life is. Its value is tied. Remember, where does life get its value? How do we know lives are precious? The message of the Bible is really, really clear on that. The value of a human life is not tied to capacity. It isn't tied to what that life can contribute to everyone else. It isn't tied to the experience it's capable of, of pleasure or pain. The value of every human life at every stage is God's word's assignment to that life of God's own image. And that means that the only foundation we have for the human rights all of us take for granted and our right to support, the only foundation for it, offers the exact same dignity and value to unborn children as it offers to us. And what that means, friends, is that these unborn children are our neighbors and we're called to love them. And loving these unborn neighbors means doing what we can to protect them. Abortion is an example of what we call a systemic injustice. The problem, in other words, is more, it's bigger than the sum of individual choices. And that means it can't be addressed as a problem. It can't be addressed merely by your individual choice not to abort. This practice is part of a system of laws and funding and philosophical argument and all sorts of other layers about what it means to be human. And at every level on which this practice is supported, we ought to oppose it. Now, absolutely, Christians are going to disagree with one another about the most effective tactics and strategies for this goal. One of the things I hope we can encourage in our life together is the ability to talk openly, honestly, about the different ways we think we have opportunity to advocate. We're not looking for a uniformity in tactics. But disagree where we may about how to get there. The Sixth Commandment doesn't give us the freedom to disagree about where we need to go. This command means that we should oppose the legal right to end another life. But it goes further than that. Remember, the two-sided rule implies we are responsible. Our duty to this command is to protect life, but also to promote it. So just as stealing, not stealing is not enough, you've got to also be willing to give away your, 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 what you have. Just as not committing adultery is not enough, but you also ought to pursue your spouse and cultivate them. So here, it's not enough only to protect lives from destruction. We're called on to promote them, to promote their flourishing. And that applies, that has serious implications for how we view the issue of abortion. Because if life is precious, we advocate for life wherever we find it, especially where it's most vulnerable. And I'll tell you where it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable in the lives of those who are most drawn to abortion. Friends, you could get rid of legal abortion. It could become illegal. And the same human lives that you've saved at one level remain at risk, endangered at another fundamental level. And not just the lives of the precious children involved, but the lives of the precious women who carry them. One of the great tragedies of the way this conversation happens right now in our public life is that 
it, it turns into a political football and the people involved are obscured. The Sixth Commandment won't let us do that. Behind the decision to seek an abortion is most often not the motive of convenience, but the motive of despair. The most recent stats that I've seen from the CDC project that 85% of those women who choose to abort are unmarried. Many of them impoverished and under-resourced. It is a tremendous burden to carry a child to term and to give birth to it. I've watched it up close three times where my wife had every advantage imaginable in prenatal care, in structural support, in a team of physicians ready at, at, at her call. And it was a tremendous cost to her to do what she did. And many people face those costs alone. Childbirth has always been life-threatening. It is substantially more likely to kill someone who's living in poverty and facing it without the support of a spouse. These lives are vulnerable at every stage. And if these women involved choose to take their children to term, they face a parenting task that is, for me, unimaginable without the support of a spouse and mutually exclusive for the job that they need to hold down in order to provide for the child that they want to have. So if this command not to kill, not to murder, if it's rooted in the preciousness of life, if it comes with a duty not just to hold back from killing but to promote flourishing of vulnerable lives everywhere, then what it means for us is that we've got to to look for our opportunities to cultivate those who are at risk at every stage. It's one reason I love our partnership with Young Lives. Here in our church, some of you have been involved with that, coming alongside mothers who are doing the hard work of taking children to term and raising them, often alone. It's one reason it makes me so happy to see more and more of you getting involved in foster care, preparing for that, either taking that on or preparing for that opportunity. These children are part of the bigger picture that's involved with abortion. And our call is not just not to kill and not just to protect, but to promote. These areas are wonderful opportunities for it that we'd love to talk to you more about if you're interested. Here's where I'll sum up this point. How do we apply this command? Well, this command applies wherever lives are vulnerable. Wherever they're vulnerable, that's where we are. They bear God's image. They're precious because he is. And that's our call. And that should be enough. Unfortunately, what we know, I mean, maybe I'm speaking for myself, I think I can speak for you too, is that it's a lot easier to talk about advocating for vulnerable lives than to actually do the work of advocating for vulnerable lives. It's hard. It's messy. It's not always clear what to do. When you do know what to do, it costs you something, and so it's not always easy to keep going. And all along the way, especially in our partisan highly charged political environment to whatever extent you get involved in in advocating for vulnerable lives you're going to carry with you an everyday temptation to see whatever you do to support vulnerable lives as a reason to justify the value of your life over against those who, who don't follow you in whatever ways you're choosing to advocate 
I, there, there are a few examples that are clearer to me of us doing the things that always lead to genocide than, than the conversation we have about life issues in American politics. Where you self-justify, you elevate yourself, and you demean other people and don't expect the best of them. We have all sorts of risk around these issues for us reaffirming in our own hearts the very posture towards other people that leads to murder. And we don't want that. We want to be able to obey. How can we? One of the things we've been saying every week as we cover these commands is that the work of Jesus puts these commands in a new perspective. They don't change them and their beauty. They don't change their importance. They don't change the call to us to obey them. But they change our perspective on these commands. What Jesus has done, his life and his work, changes our perspective on these commands. They've always been good. They've always been rooted in who God is to us. But after Jesus, it's like what was once black and white, you know, in a grainy old photo. And we were looking at it from that posture. Is now like bright, vivid color, 3D. Actually, my 3D movies are terrible, so... Maybe I won't use 3D. It's like what we were once looking at, like a landscape in black and white. We're now there in living color, walking around, moving around, seeing it all, experiencing it all. That's what Jesus' resurrection has done to the commands of the Old Testament. It's put them in a wholly new and vibrant perspective. So this command to see others as precious and worthy of protection and cultivation, it's always made some sense in the kind of sense that 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 a landscape and grainy black and white photo makes sense to you. It's made sense, I think, to all of us at some sort of gut level, partly because we carry God's law in our heart, partly because it makes sense when it's your own life that you want to see it protected, or when it's your family's life that you want to see it protected, or your tribe's lives, you want to see those protected, maybe your nation's lives. But the the idea that all lives, by definition, are worthy of protection, that's something that's been difficult to connect with for all humans everywhere but not anymore. Why? Because when you're loved by God in Christ, who came to lay down His own life so that He could take it up again, so that everyone who trusts in Him can have life and have it abundantly, when you're loved like this, you come to love Him. And how can you really love someone and not love what they love? This is where this sermon becomes an Easter sermon. In the New Testament, our ethics, the description of what our lives should look like, always, always get connected back to our message, to our gospel, to what God has done for us in Jesus. The Bible clearly teaches us that obedience to his commands comes from hearts that have been changed, from hearts that have experienced his goodness and grace, that when you experience his goodness and his grace... It drives you to reflect something of his goodness and grace to other people. And the best motive we have for respecting life, from protecting it and promoting it wherever we can, the best motive we have for that is a clear view of God's own love for and commitment to life. Besides the creation of human beings in God's image, besides that fundamental act, There has never been a more life-affirming act than the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when you see yourself through what he's done for you, it changes you. It empowers you to protect and to promote life as he did, not from self-righteousness, 
as if you had something he didn't give you, as if you had anything that could justify you looking down on anybody else. Not from guilt or fear, as if you had any reason for, to, to, to be afraid, but from love. In John's gospel, life is a, is a especially prominent theme. It, it comes out over and over and over again in the way that John tells us about who Jesus is and what he's done. There's one passage in particular. We read from it in our Good Friday service on Friday. Chapters 10 and 11 of John, this, this life theme comes straight to the center of who Jesus is and what he tells us he came to do. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. What did Jesus come for? The whole point of the God who made us becoming human like us was so that he could give abundant life to people who trust in him. That was his mission. He continues in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The one who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves, and the sheep, he leaves the sheep, he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's what the hired hand does. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I have taken them up, in other words, into the same relationship of love that I have always had with my Father. They're now part of that. I know them. And what does he do for those sheep that he knows? I lay down my life for them. He protects life. He came to protect life. And just one chapter later, this Jesus who came to give us himself the water of life that always satisfies and never runs dry. The bread of life that eating on it, you will never die. The shepherd who came to lay down his life so that others could live. This Jesus, in his final sign before his own death and resurrection, gives life to his friend Lazarus who had died and tells Lazarus' family, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And what's the point of all these strung together references? Jesus' life and work was about life. That's what he came for. That's what he planned with his father. That's the agenda he executed on perfectly. And that's the hope into which he was resurrected. So at Easter and really every other week, every day, we celebrate that he did exactly what he said he would. Lay down his life for sinners so he could take it back up again. Rose from the dead so that we could live not threatened or shackled by the fear of death. So that we could pass through death as he did and live free of it forever as he does. He rose as the Lord of life. And he purchased the right to offer life to us. And what you need to know is that if you receive what he offers, you also come up under his banner. When you come up under the banner of the Lord of life, you're called to love what he loves and to pursue what's precious to him. Because imitation is the highest form of flattery after all, is it not? What better way 
to celebrate Easter, to live in the hope and the joy and the freedom of Jesus' resurrection than to seek life for others in his name. That's our calling. Let's pray that God will help us to take it up. Father, we know from your word that there is only one hope for everlasting life, and that is in your son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again so that we could have life with him. But we know that you've also put us here as his ambassadors in this world for now to advocate for what is precious to you. We pray that you would give us courage, clarity, conviction, patience and grace, resilience for this work, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us confidence to talk with one another about how we can do this work together, that you would give us sensitivity towards the opportunities in our lives right in front of us where lives are vulnerable and needing care, and that all along the way you would motivate us ultimately not by our own desire to be on the winning side, by our own desire to be insiders to the future, by our own desire to have some platform for looking down on others who don't get it, but only by the love in our hearts spread there by your love for us in Jesus. We pray that you would do this work for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.